This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. <laughs> How much of that did you want to grab today? I would love to grab a quarter ounce. Quarter ounce of the Skywalker. <laughs> it's a Tuesday night, right before midnight. I'm standing around in a parking lot near the airport, waiting to buy weed. This wasn't an illicit transaction. At midnight of October 1st, recreational marijuana legally went on sale in Oregon. And I have to admit something, which is, um, which is, I have never actually purchased pot before. I know that's hard to believe because I'm in my 20s and I live in Portland, but it's true. I'm just not that interested in weed. I've always thought that smoking pot is honestly pretty boring. Even worse than smoking weed is talking about smoking weed. Wait, I get flashbacks to the endless stoner conversations I endured at high school parties. But when I went out to the opening of the recreational marijuana store last week near the airport, I found something that was really interesting. I talked with the co-founder of the shop, which was named Shango. The co-founder's name is Shane McKee. He wore a gold chain and a nice jacket. As we waited in the lobby in front of a heavy locked door, he told me what to expect inside the marijuana dispensary. So you check their ID, you check their card. Uh, at that point, they would be let into the showroom, and uh, we would encourage them to check out our tablets and our menus that we have that are educational and look at some of the genetics on the wall where the uh, crystal sconces were. Did you say check out the genetics on the wall next to the crystal sconces? Yeah, strains, species, different types. Oh, okay. Yeah, flavors. I'm not exactly sure what I was expecting from a recreational marijuana store, but it certainly wasn't crystal sconces. As the clock hit midnight, the 40 or so people who had been waiting outside poured into the dispensary. Inside waiting for them was a fancy display. Along the wall, a row of clear cases held marijuana flowers, each labeled with their strain and growing conditions. It kind of felt like a cross between an upscale artesian restaurant and a weed museum. Also inside were a group of men wearing sports coats. They seemed to be surveying the crowd. The staff told me that those guys were all Las Vegas investors. This little weed outlet by the airport is actually owned by a company based in Nevada. They own a string of marijuana stores around the West. It's clear that there is massive money to be made in marijuana, and they want to be in on it. As I stood there at the marijuana midnight opening party, surrounded by an upbeat crowd excited about the new horizons of the cannabis industry, I started thinking a lot about the people who weren't there. The gender and race dynamics of the marijuana industry are very interesting, even if, like me, you've never wanted to buy weed in your life. Actually, buying weed turned out to be a little overwhelming, honestly. As I gazed at all the edible marijuana items at the checkout counter, I just had way too many options. We've got these, like, lollipops, we've got some taffy, we've got these squishy things that are called lunchbox alchemy. We've got something called Jolly Greens, Shango Chocolates, LB's Edibles, Astral Sweets. I have no, I have no idea. As somebody who has never purchased marijuana, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, the Lunchbox Alchemy ones look really cute. You think those are good? The squib is the best. Go for the squib. 100 milligrams. 10 bucks, 100 milligrams. Is that, that, is that good? Thing. Is that 100 milligrams like a lot of milligrams? It'll, it'll, it'll get you on the couch, yeah, it'll put you on it, couch locked a little bit. It turned out that I couldn't buy anything edible, 
Even though recreational marijuana is legal, only people with medical marijuana cards can buy medical-filled gummies or snacks. So I would have to buy marijuana in its smokable form. The clerk handed me a big box of joints. Unlike any joint you've ever seen in a college dorm room, these legally bought and sold joints are packaged individually, conveniently pre-rolled and sealed in little plastic tubes. On the side of each tube is an official-looking type. On the side of each tube is an official-looking label. It lists out the name of the marijuana variety and its levels of THC and cannabinoids. It looks kind of like a marijuana nutritional label. Now, I am not a weed connoisseur, so I just chose two joints based on their names. I guess I'll take an Obama Kush and a Skywalker. Good choice on the Skywalker. Like it or not, cannabis is a huge industry. But unlike most giant industries, this one is just starting to be built. Right now. There are lots of problems and growing pains because it's so new and so quasi-legal under federal law. For example, I had to pay for my Skywalker and Obama Kush with cash because marijuana dispensaries cannot accept credit cards. There's huge problems around banking. Basically, the legal marijuana industry, which made $2.7 billion last year and is projected to reach $11 billion by 2019, runs entirely on cash. Billions and billions of dollars in cash. On the West Coast, the cannabis industry is now the stuff of glossy magazines. Pot shop owners get profiled as up-and-coming entrepreneurs. If you've seen a weekly newspaper in Oregon, Washington, Colorado, or California recently, they are packed with ads for marijuana dispensaries and gear and growing supplies. But for decades, laws against marijuana have hurt certain communities more than others. Specifically, African Americans have been twice as likely to be arrested for marijuana crimes than white people. Now that marijuana is becoming a big legal business, who will be part of that business? Will people who have been hurt the most by drug laws be part of the industry now that it's legal? Or will cannabis become business as usual? Business that is dominated by white men who have the money to bankroll new startups. The newness of the industry creates some problems, but it also presents enormous opportunity to build an industry from scratch. Imagine if we could go back in time to when Silicon Valley was just gearing up and say, hey, no way are the people running this show going to be all rich white dudes. Well, we don't have a time machine. Instead, some people who care about racial and gender equity are trying to make the future of cannabis one that includes the people who are usually left out. Amid all the celebrations of the new marijuana industry, there are some people who cannot attend the parties. People who are in jail, serving time for crimes that are now legal, like possession of marijuana. People often think that if a state decriminalizes or legalizes marijuana, then the people in jail for marijuana get retroactively pardoned. That would be a logical thing to assume, but that doesn't happen. In Oregon in 2014, there were 200 people still behind bars for nonviolent marijuana offenses that are now legal. Just this week, the Obama administration announced that 6,000 people with nonviolent drug offenses would be let out of jail. That's huge news. But it doesn't change the reality that when a state legalizes or decriminalizes marijuana, those people don't automatically have their sentences reduced. Instead, reducing the impact of our past drug laws takes a big act of political will. One person who's thought long and hard about the people impacted by marijuana laws is Lou Frederick. Lou is a politician, an African-American state representative from North Portland who works a lot on issues of racial equity and incarceration. It is very clear that uh, although the use of marijuana uh, 
and the sale of marijuana uh, for in the past was across all cultural and and ethnic boundaries. Uh, there, there, it was it was about the same for all of those particular groups. The arrest records, the uh, convictions, uh, and the, the 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 length of sentences was almost always clearly disproportionate regarding minorities, African Americans in particular, um, in the in the in the rest of the country. While there's some people in jail for marijuana crimes, there's a lot more, about 26,000 in Oregon, who are out of jail but still have felonies on their records from nonviolent marijuana-related crimes. Those lingering felonies create huge problems, which Lou hears about often. But what, what this means is that if you want to get housing, uh, if you want to get housing, uh, renting a, an, an apartment somewhere, uh, often there is a a uh, checkoff on whether you've had a drug conviction. Uh, and, and, and if you want to get uh, jobs, you know, we all know about the, the, uh, uh, the box, ban the box approach in terms of jobs, but that is also one of the places that you don't get a chance to uh, even have the, the conversation about it. Uh, once, once you have that conviction on your record, you, you are immediately um, dismissed as not available for that particular housing. Probably the most insidious situation for me has been that if you have a marijuana conviction and you want to get a, uh, a scholarship, in many cases you can't even get a scholarship, which means that stops you from education on a number of other levels, and that can, that can then create problems. In the last legislative session, Lou proposed a law that would help thousands of people with nonviolent marijuana felonies clear their records to get a clean slate. The idea became law. Lou says it got a lot of support and passed easily in the majority Democrat legislature. But legally, it feels like the people who have been hurt by decades of policing marijuana are often an afterthought in all the hoopla around cannabis. No, it's clear that if you had money, you could start putting money into it. And for a lot of folks, they didn't have that money. And uh, the people, some of the folks who actually probably know more about the, uh, the industry or know more about the the, the plants and the and the quality uh, had been left out of it because of uh, the, all the legal things that had taken place um, in the past. The fact is, we have had a war on drugs for uh, several decades now. Um, I think that we, I hope that we will, by way of some of this expunction, uh, folks, uh, finally start dealing with the prisoners of that war, and uh, and and letting them uh, finally reintegrate into the, uh, into the community and get a sense of, of what's going to be effective. Here's something surprising. As states like Washington, Oregon, and Colorado have legalized marijuana, nationwide, arrests for marijuana crimes have gone up, not down. Reform group the Drug Policy Alliance keeps track of these arrests. Amanda Raymond, who works for the Drug Policy Alliance, reports that in 2014, someone was arrested in the United States for marijuana every 45 seconds. Even though marijuana arrests dropped significantly in states where it's now legal, overall in the country we saw an increase of 7,000 arrests. So what that means is that the arrests that are not happening in states where it's legal are increasing in states where it's illegal. So we're starting to see those states that are still holding on to prohibition, the citizens of those states are bearing the brunt of this enforcement. 
The increase of marijuana arrests seems weird to me. I mean, it seems like our attitude toward pot is evolving as a nation. We're becoming more tolerant of marijuana. What once got many people thrown in jail is now the basis of a burgeoning industry. So why would marijuana arrests increase? Um, a lot of law enforcement communities uh, are financially dependent on the war on marijuana. It's the most commonly used illicit substance. It's com- very easy to tell when someone's using it because it's very smelly. Um, it's often used by young people, by people that the police are trying to keep tabs on for other reasons. Uh, police departments get federal funding specifically to eradicate marijuana. I asked Amanda about the disconnect between the people who are more likely to be arrested for marijuana crimes versus the people who are now pouring into the legal marijuana industries. Do you know if it's overwhelmingly, if it's more likely to be white people involved in that industry? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't even need to do any kind of formalized survey to tell you that. Um, You know, I've been involved in this for 15 years. I've been going to these conferences and meetings of the industry for 15 years. And I will tell you who's at these meetings and who's at these conferences with all this industry and this money and this investment. It's white men. And I think it's something that people recognize, but it's hard to combat that because of the way the laws are in place, looking at who ends up with criminal records, who has the capital in order to make this kind of investment. Who, has, who is risk-adverse enough to make this kind of investment in a new and burgeoning industry? And that tends to be white men who have a lot of capital. For years now, people have helped change the perception of marijuana by arguing that it should be just like any other industry. But it's not just like any other industry, says Amanda Raymond, nor should it be. Policing of marijuana has wreaked havoc on communities. It would be a shame if the marijuana industry didn't help repair that damage. Until we really acknowledge the war on drugs and the role the war on drugs has played in creating this situation and also creating certain communities that have become reliant on the illicit sales of marijuana for their financial well-being, we're not going to create a system that's going to do what we want it to do, which is to end discrimination and criminalization and create an equal opportunity industry. Across the country, cities are adapting to new ideas about marijuana. But legalizing or decriminalizing marijuana isn't a silver bullet to fixing the racist and classist problems with our justice system. What does decriminalizing marijuana mean in a city like, say, Baltimore, which has a history of very high drug arrests and racial disparities? Writer and former cannabis policy assistant Caitlin Goldblatt brings us this story on policing of marijuana in the Charm City Maryland arrests a lot of people for marijuana. At least we used to. Before the state I live in decriminalized marijuana possession last year, police officers arrested 26,000 people every year for having pot. That's the fourth highest arrest rate for marijuana in the country, actually, right after New York, Washington, D.C., and Nebraska. Now, in addition to decriminalizing recreational marijuana, Maryland has okayed the licensed growth and sale of medical marijuana. This should all be very good news for people who bear the brunt of arrests in the war on drugs. People of color. So, while Big Pot is funneling money to white dudes, 
the industry is failing to correct the problems that arise from generations of racial and class-based disparities in policing. Here's the background. Last year, Maryland's state legislature voted to decriminalize marijuana. That doesn't mean marijuana is legal now, it just means that if police catch you with up to 10 grams of marijuana, you'll now only have to pay a fine of $100 instead of facing criminal charges, provided that this is your first offense. Lawmakers agreed that decriminalizing marijuana possession was a good idea, for a couple of big reasons. The first is that it was a huge waste of money. All of the police time and local jail costs spent on people charged with crimes as small as having a few grams of pot adds up. The state ended up spending $106 million arresting people for what many citizens view as a harmless vice. Second, lawmakers were alarmed that there were massive racial disparities in the arrest rates. Race doesn't affect whether people smoke pot. White and black people report using marijuana at similar rates. But race does affect whether you'll be arrested for smoking pot. Because black people are almost four times as likely as white people to be arrested for possession. Police are more likely to stop black people while they're driving, or even while they're walking down the street, and demand to search them. And that leads to higher rates of arrest. Looking at those facts, Maryland decided last year to join the 18 other states that have decriminalized marijuana. Marijuana reform advocates have expressed hope that decriminalizing pot will help change the way people of color are more likely to be stopped, searched, arrested, and ultimately imprisoned in the state. But the law included some big loopholes too. For example, while possessing small amounts of pot is no longer a criminal offense, possessing marijuana paraphernalia, like a pipe or a bong, is still illegal. Reform-minded legislators passed a bill to fix that loophole this spring, and it passed. But then the governor, Larry Hogan, vetoed it. This veto struck many political observers as strange. After all, why outlaw marijuana pipes if marijuana itself isn't the problem? The governor said that he vetoed the bill at the request of the police. Namely the Maryland State's Attorneys Association, the Maryland Chiefs of Police Association, and the Maryland Sheriff's Association all requested he veto the bill. The police group said that legalizing marijuana paraphernalia would make it harder for law enforcement officers to make traffic stops if they saw a person smoking cannabis while driving. That worry didn't make much sense to the ACLU, though. They pointed out that driving high would still be illegal, they called the failure to close the loophole an epic fail. Now, people with enough money to conceal their smoke in houses located in neighborhoods that are policed less often, that's wealthier, wider neighborhoods, don't have to worry about being arrested for pot. People just walking down the street in a poorer neighborhood will still have to worry about getting stopped by the police. In Maryland, the pattern of people being arrested and harassed by the police while being nonviolent became national news after the death of Freddie Gray last spring. Freddie Gray was walking around West Baltimore on a morning in April when two police officers say he made eye contact with them and then ran away. 
They chased him down the street, searched him, and allegedly found a switchblade. So they arrested him. In police custody, his spinal cord was severed, and Freddie died a week later. His death is currently being investigated as murder, and the trials begin in November. This is the kind of thing that makes people of color in Maryland fear the police when they come into contact with them. Baltimore neighborhoods have been torn apart by the war on drugs. Now that medical marijuana sales are legally beginning, though, it doesn't look like the people most hurt by years of cracking down on pot will benefit much from its legalization. In the first decade of the 2000s, pot arrests in Maryland increased by 34%. So people who were in the marijuana industry before it was legal will now have a hard time getting into the business now that it's booming. Because black people were disproportionately arrested for marijuana before, they're now at a disadvantage since the laws have changed. The legal cannabis industry is only just being built. We're still in the very early days of legal marijuana. Legalizing marijuana has made life better in some major ways. In Colorado, fewer people of color have been incarcerated since the state legalized cannabis, but racial disparities in law enforcement and business creation still exist. It's important to take strides to make sure women and people of color can carve out more than small stakes in the billion-dollar pot business. Otherwise, the same people who have always gotten rich will continue to do so. That was writer Caitlin Goldblatt. So we've talked about a lot of the bad stuff with the cannabis industry. The ways that some people are being not only left out of the booming cannabis business, but still arrested and policed, even as people like me can easily go pick up a packet of Obama Kush at the corner store. But what about the future? How can we make this better? I called up someone who is excited about the future of cannabis. My name is Sarah Batterby. I am the uh, CEO of Hi-Fi Farms, which is a cannabis cultivation company. Sarah is a proud small farmer of America. She just happens to farm pot. And business is good. Right now, she grows 20 pounds of medical-grade marijuana a month in the suburbs of Portland. Because recreational marijuana sales just became legal in the state, she's now hugely expanding her business, from 300 square feet of growing space to 3,000 square feet with plans to sell 100 pounds of medical and recreational marijuana a month. She's also the founding chair and director of the Portland chapter of Women Grow, a national networking group for women in the cannabis industry. In her experience, the multi-billion dollar cannabis industry is a golden opportunity. Since the industry is being built from the ground up, people like Sarah are hoping it can be more welcoming to women than industries that are already established. Well, I came from an industry that is definitely male-dominated. I might kind of migrated to cannabis from technology and venture capital. Both of those industries, um, I would say technology is male-dominated and venture capital, I would say, is practically hostile to women. Um, it's a very, very difficult environment for women. And so when I came to cannabis from those industries, I just was excited to be in a place where uh, it wasn't, the, the dynamics that were in place had less to do with gender than they had to do with the stage of the industry. The industry is so new that there are no pre-established kind of 
you know, places where all the influence has gathered or all the money has gathered. So there's no in club and there's no out club. There's no there's no old boys network. There's none of the established kind of old school protocols that are used to distribute influence and money around in our legacy industries. And so it's kind of a wide open playing field. Historically, women and people of color have not been able to accumulate wealth at the same rates as white men. And when you look at who gets funding from venture capitalists, those people with lots of money who back startups in the Silicon Valley, it's also mostly men. But Sarah says, in her experience, the cannabis industry is different. Remember, she used to work in tech and has seen sexism in the past keep women from getting funding for their projects. But part of what makes cannabis different is that there aren't a lot of experts in it yet, or gatekeepers. What I'm seeing is that money is not discriminating against women in this industry. Now, I don't know why that is. Um, what I would suggest is that there's so, there's so few businesses that both have the ability to make this product really well and also the business acumen to build the business that if an investor can find a woman who's competent is doing a good job running her business, has some sense of how business works and how to manage uh, her finances, and she has a good cannabis product, then she's going to be a, a target for investors. And she doesn't have the competition of like thousands and thousands of, of companies that are just as good as hers that are being run by men. So it's just different. The numbers are different. The dynamics are different. Um, and there are more investors than there are really competent CEOs to take their money. That doesn't mean that starting a cannabis business is a cakewalk for women. To build an equitable industry takes work. And I don't think that we're going to overnight solve the problems of, of, you know, pay equality, capital, you know, distribution, venture capital equality. We're not going to solve those overnight. We're just building the industry from the ground up, and I think it's going to be different. And there are issues like... Uh, women have been incredibly um, objectified in the way cannabis is, you know, marketed. It's been branded and marketed in a way traditionally that's not um, very helpful to women. Um, it's really important that if we're going to build the industry differently, then we we craft a new, la- a new language. You know, that means it, it doesn't just mean the money goes to different people. We have to re-educate people so that when they come into this industry, they understand that we're operating by a different set of guiding principles in relation to how we treat men and women, and that it feels like a place that's accessible to everybody. So at the beginning of the show, I visited the marijuana dispensary run by a bunch of Las Vegas dudes, investors, people who are hoping to make bank on the newly legal pot industry. But not everyone in cannabis is looking to become a millionaire. Some people are hoping to build a different kind of economy. Hi, hello, welcome. How are you? Yeah, sure. Melissa. Pleasure. Yes. This is Melissa Egan, the owner of a dispensary called Panacea. It's uh, my medical marijuana dispensary. It's on Sandy Boulevard, which is the Green Mile in Portland, Oregon. The Green Mile meaning there's lots of marijuana dispensaries along the street. The Green Mile, exactly. There, you can find the most strains of marijuana on Sandy Boulevard than any other street in the world. What? There are 
there's nowhere that there are as many dispensaries because there's no schools on Sandy. So every thousand feet, there's no barrier to to getting a dispensary here. Mm, yeah, because in in Oregon you have to be at least a thousand feet away from a school to have a dispensary. Exactly, a thousand feet away from a school and a thousand feet away from another dispensary. So yep, all up and down Sandy. Her store is cute and decorated with classy wood paneling. All marijuana dispensaries have a waiting room, putting a locked door between the cash-heavy dispensary and the street traffic. But unlike most dispensaries, Melissa has turned her waiting room into a small art gallery. So we have a gallery, and then also it makes it much more friendly. Like, you know, we have restaurant traffic, and I put gallery open to the public there because people would walk by and be like, hmm, you know, cannabis is so scary to people and whatnot, so... When I ask Melissa about how she got into cannabis, the answer isn't what you'd expect. Her background isn't in big business or the tech industry. It's in homelessness prevention. Her passion for years has been finding housing for LGBT seniors. Affordable housing is a huge issue, and LGBT folks can face discrimination and ostracism in some housing projects. Melissa spent a long time trying to fundraise to create an LGBT-friendly senior housing project. But she didn't get much money. So instead, she decided to jump into the cannabis industry. Written into her business plan is a promise to give 10% of Panacea's profits to social justice causes. She's hoping to funnel the money from selling cannabis into helping those LGBT seniors. Melissa shows me around her store, which has a tall wooden shelf with glass jars full of marijuana flowers. Um, So we have a couple of strains that are just new in. Um, I'll just start with Blue Power... Um, so the strain names are obviously crazy. I kind of joke, I'm a wine person, so I'm much more used to Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet Sauvignon, and all these names that are just, like, sophisticated, and they last for generations. And then marijuana names are obviously very different. As the cannabis industry develops, Melissa is hoping that it doesn't just create wealth for a few people who already have money. Instead, she wants the new money to grow better lives for folks who need it most. Some call it pot, it has other names, but if it's good grass, the results the same as in marijuana, yeah, marijuana, marijuana blue. You can buy it by the ounce, you can buy it by the pound. I owe a lot of thank yous for this show. Thanks to John Sepulveda for recording the audio of me buying pot at midnight. Thanks to reporter Kristen McCurdy for an article she published in Street Roots with a lot of the data I cited here. And thanks to Esther Harlow for telling me about her friendly, neighborhood, woman-owned marijuana store. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like-minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening.